Welcome back, everyone, to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Harbir Sayan. Uh, he's an optometrist from Vancouver, B.C., who has taken over the optometry world through social media. He's had a YouTube channel for about six years now, making videos for patient education. He's written many blogs and articles on various optometry-related topics, and he has a huge presence on social media. And now he's also the host of his own podcast, The 2020 Podcast. This interview was recorded over Zoom, so apologies in advance for any audio lag or any distorted sounds. Uh, we just hope that you enjoy the interview and learn just as much as we did. So enjoy. So, you know, we already know a lot about you. You have like a really, really big presence on all different forms of social media and just in the optometry community in general. But um, just in case if there are any of our listeners who don't know anything about you, <laughs> would you like to give us just a little brief um, introduction of who you are? Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Amrit. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of people who don't actually know who I am, but I appreciate <laughs> you uh, giving me that kind of a reputation already. But um, yeah. <laughs> my name is uh, Dr. Harbir Sayan. I'm an optometrist in the Vancouver area. Uh, I'm a co-owner of two practices, uh, in, one in Surrey, BC, one in Abbotsford. As you said, I, I'm very active online. I, I, one of the things that I have loved to do from day one is, is to look for ways to be um, engaging and involved outside of the office. And so back in 2010, when I graduated, uh, that started with writing blogs. Then it uh, evolved to making YouTube videos and volunteering in you know, mo mobile clinics or volunteer clinics, um, volunteering within our association and all sorts of other things. And, and so all of those opportunities have kind of led me to where I am now. I have my own podcast and, and all these things. It's, it's been a really fun journey. And I'm just always looking for something new and exciting to not only better myself, but also help at the same time advocate for our profession and, and help it grow. Yeah. We initially wanted to bring you on to our podcast because we know that you graduated from NECO, but now you're practicing in Canada. So we wanted to know, you know, how did you handle that transition from learning U.S. related optometry and then going into working in Canada? Like what kind of resources did you use to really help you navigate through the Canadian aspects of optometry? Yeah, I, I've always been, um, the way that I like to learn is by having conversations with people. So I'm, I've never been very good at like the textbook stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, like that's just, I love studying in groups and absorbing from other people and that kind of stuff and, and sharing information. So that's how I approached coming back home as well. So in my fourth year, I structured my rotation so that my last rotation was here in Vancouver. And in that last three months or so, plus the, the summer time when I wasn't um, actually working, I was waiting for the uh, licensing and everything else, I just spent that time calling uh, ODs around the area and talking to them. And that's something, a piece of information that I would strongly recommend, you know, and this would maybe require some people breaking out of their comfort zone a bit, but one thing that has served me really well all these years, even today, uh, is become comfortable cold calling people. Um, I literally called people that I'd never met before, um, and I just said, hey, I'm a new optometrist. I'm graduating in a couple of months. Uh, a, do you have a job for me? B, uh, do you have any advice for me? And C, do you, like, do you have somebody else I can talk to 
if you think that there might be somebody valuable I could speak to. And that was it. I spoke to, I don't know, a dozen different optometrists. You know what? The way I started working is maybe not the way a lot of people want to, but I ended up working at four different clinics, uh, like just one or two days at each clinic and just sort of, I don't know. One was, it was, it was hard to find a job that was going to be the steady five days a week, which I think we all kind of want initially. Uh, but the other thing is, I realized quickly, there's a lot of value in working at a couple of different places. One, it keeps it fresh, uh, but also you get to learn from different people in different settings. But sorry, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent. To, to answer your question, really, the way I approached it was by talking to other people who were already established or who had maybe just gone through it. Maybe they graduated a year or two ahead of me. I was going to come back to BC anyway. Obviously, I, I, you know, I never personally intended to do a residency. Obviously, nothing against doing residencies. There's massive value in doing it. But that was just not my path. So. I knew the way I wanted to practice. I called the optometrists who were practicing the way I wanted to practice. And I just took as much advice as I could. That's awesome. I feel like that's kind of, that's basically what we're doing with this podcast platform too, is Mm -hmm. we're just reaching out to a lot of ODs who we've never met before. And we're getting out of our comfort zone to just ask the questions and make connections and learn more from other experienced ODs because we still don't know what we're doing. So pretty much. It's okay. Neither do I. So you'll, you'll always be, you'll always be learning. And that, that, that's the best way to learn is by talking to somebody who's already done it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when you were in optometry school, did you always knew that, like, know that you were going to be in private practice or did you think you were going to go into more industry stuff or what did you think during optometry school? Yeah, for, I, I don't know where the idea came from, but the goal from day one was private practice. Like, I'm not going to do residency. I'm going to go home. And as soon as I can, I'm going to open up my own practice. I, I don't know why it was such a, a solid thought in my mind that there was like no wavering from it. The interesting thing was that the ODs that I got in touch with when I came back, and in fact, the, the guy who was sort of my original mentor here in Vancouver, um, the, the OD that I kind of give credit to for, for me going into optometry is Dr. Amr Pawa. So if this ever gets back to him, I love you, Dr. Pawa. Uh, anybody who knows him, he's been practicing for many years now. Everybody loves the guy. Um, but, uh, Dr. Powa and a few of the associates at his office, they all, they're all in a a sublease next door to LensCrafters. He was the first person I contacted when I wanted to come back home. And then he put me in touch with his friends and colleagues who were also in sublease practices. And so that's actually where I ended up to begin with was next door to LensCrafters. Um, not what I had envisioned when I was in school, but you know, the, the general concept was still there of me owning my own practice, but it was just a sublease practice versus an independent is very limited opportunities here. I think in other provinces, it's different in the U S for sure. It's very, very different, but here there's very, very few new sublease practices opening up. Um, and that's it. So, so out here opportunities for that are pretty limited. So I was pretty, um, I felt pretty honored that they they approached me because I had kind of made my name within that little circle. But again, the goal was still private practice, independent private practice. And so just a couple of years ago, we had the opportunity, my business partner and I, to um, to start a cold, uh, had, <clears throat> excuse me, had a cold start in Surrey. And I see where people come. You guys have probably heard the conversation around uh, private practice versus corporate optometry. And, and a lot of people are very vocal about it. I'm obviously have one foot in each. Um, so I can, I'm happy to talk about both, but I don't think it's appropriate for personally the people who are in private practice looking down on people who are in corporate uh, because we have a corporate setting and we practice almost the exact same way, literally. 
the only thing, obviously, I, I don't want to down, downplay it. The only thing we don't do is dispense. And dispensing comes with a lot of its own challenges. But practicing as an optometrist, it feels exactly the same to me. When I'm in the exam room with a patient, I recommend all the exact same things. So, so day one, my goal was always to have a practice. Um, and that's the way I approached it right when I came home. But, you know, everybody's got their own path. So if you're, if you're not sure, I'm going to go back to what I first said. Call other ODs and talk to them and see what you think fits best for you. Um, and I think you'll find, you know, you'll find whatever's right. Nice. nice. Yeah. Sorry, I give really long worded <laughs> answers. I hope you don't mind. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. One word answer where you're like, yes. And then I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just a heads up. We're very sarcastic people who love to laugh and joke around. So don't take anything from me. Oh, it's okay. I felt right at home right as soon as we got on yeah. the call. <laughs> I, you know what here I'm going to show you my mug I don't know if people are going to be watching this or just listening can you read that my dad jokes yeah, yeah. so my, st my staff bought me this oh. because that's all I do is walk around oh. I think I'm making funny jokes but apparently they classify as dad jokes yeah <laughs> we have the time think we're making funny jokes and then when we tell our other friends about the jokes they're like that's oh, what you're talking no. about but we're like Listen, <laughs> as long as you as long as you find it funny it was worth it yeah I, know. I don't know yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so kind of going back to like you uh, opening your private practice and you said you have a business partner. Mm. What kind of like qualities did you look for in a business partner and like how exactly did you find your partner? So actually my business partner and I have been friends since high school. Oh, so it's a very unique situation um, that I don't expect most people to have the luxury of yeah. being in. So the number one thing I'm going to say, and this is, this is maybe specific to me, is I needed somebody who was extremely tolerant. She, she's known me for 25 years, which is crazy to think now. Um, and so she knows a lot of my flaws. Um, and majority of my flaws are that I'm, I'm a procrastinator. I get to be, I tend to be quite lazy. Uh, and I do things, I just do things at my own pace, which is not often the pace that a lot of other people want to go at. And Harleen is very, very meticulous, diligent, organized. So she's almost the opposite of me in that sense. So I, I almost actually would say it's, it's valuable to find. And I think you probably heard the cliche is like find somebody who, who has strengths where you have your weaknesses and, and yeah. vice versa, you kind of balance. And so I think that's kind of what we actually have. But uh, I needed somebody who was very tolerant of my, uh, the way that I work. Finding somebody where you're, you're, you kind of have a balance. Uh, again, you, it's unlikely that your, your business partner is going to have been your friend since you were in high school. Yeah. But you, the number one thing you need, aside from a tolerant person, is somebody you can trust. Mm -hmm. right? um, and that trust will be built through different experiences and, and obviously over time. Um, and there will be tough situations. There's, as much as we try, it just is so hard when you're doing a business, it's, it's impossible to avoid difficult times. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where the, the tolerance comes in. You, it's literally like a marriage. Um, you know, I have a work wife and a home wife and you go through similar kinds of ups and downs in a, in a business relationship as you do in a home relationship. So you need to be able to put up with the person. So that's kind of where I'd go. Number one, uh, I'll, I'll rearrange my, my list here. Trust, number one. Number two, somebody who's tolerant and understands your your personality, mm -hmm. and then somebody who does actually uh, balance out your strengths and weaknesses. Yeah.
Yeah, nice. That's perfect. I feel like that kind of applies to how we all decided to do a podcast together too. Mm. There's four personalities. So there's definitely a different dynamic, different opinions. And so we've all given responsibilities to each other based on everyone's strengths. Um, yeah. So that the work is still split evenly and no one is stepping on each other's toes and things like that. So that what you said, I feel like was perfect. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. No, that's great that you guys have the awareness to, to do that. Cause uh, I, that's part of the reason why I tend to do a lot of the stuff I do, I do on my own is because I don't think I'm particularly good at delegating. Mm -hmm. And so I just, other than work wise at work, uh, when I'm in the office, I feel like I, I have more of a grasp on, I know who to give the tasks to. You have to when you're the owner and managing the staff. But when it comes to things like a podcast um, or other things that I'm doing, I tend to just do them on my own because I don't think I would have the ability like you guys have yeah. to split the tasks up appropriately. So good for you guys. Yeah, thanks. Um, and actually, um, kind of adding on to that, finding a business partner. So when you're opening up your optometry practice, who else should you be looking for to hire onto your team? Such as, you know, what kind of lawyers do you need or brokers mm -hmm. or staff? Who do you need to hire to properly get that paperwork done or any other process of opening up the practice? And how long does that process take? A long time. Oh. <laughs> or I should say longer, <laughs> you know, longer than you expect or plan for it to be, for sure. Yeah. No, like any, any friend, colleague, business, uh, anybody else I've spoken to in business, it always takes longer than you expect, even when you put a buffer period in there. And that's just, that's the frustrating part about doing a business, especially a cold start when you have to literally build out the unit. Um, so you get to hire contractors and stuff like that. Uh, but you, you hit a, on a couple of the top ones, right? So you absolutely need to have a lawyer. You need to have an accountant. And those are the two that we see. The accountant is the one that we talk to very, very regularly, pretty much weekly in some shape or form, especially now with all these things going on and we got to figure out who's paying whom and how much and whatever. The lawyer is, is vital in the beginning stages because you'll be signing lots of contracts and leases and all these things. Depending on how you're approaching it, you likely will need some form of a realtor or somebody in the, who has some kind of expertise in the real estate market. Now, we um, sort of bypassed that because we found our unit sort of through a friend who knew the landlord. And so we, we, but we still had to bring the documents uh, to our lawyer and other people in between. And then when it comes to the construction side of things, uh, you'll have to find a contractor, somebody who's actually able to build out the unit for you and hire all the tradespeople. And that is a headache, <laughs> a massive headache. Uh, well, it was for us anyway. And, you know, one thing I'll say, um, you know, I'm not sure if this is on the same line as, as what you're thinking for the question, but you, you will want to, for sure, I think, in my opinion, align yourself with a group a buying group or something along those lines mm -hmm. uh, when you are, when it's, when it's coming around time to open, um, you know, you're six months out from opening or a few months out from opening, mm -hmm. you want to have me nail down a buying group that you want to be part of. Now you could do it alone, mm -hmm. but it's just so much harder these days with corporate, with online, okay. um, with most other pr private practices being part of a buying group is very difficult to get the same rates as everybody else. And it goes beyond like just getting uh, rates, cheaper rates on frames and things like that. Most of these buying groups are really adding a lot of other value. So for example, our private practice is part of a group called Independent Alliance, which is under the umbrella of FYI doctors. You guys are probably familiar with FYI doctors. Mm -hmm. 
So FYI is, is huge. And IA is very small, a small piece of that, but it's their independent practice sort of uh, arm. So we do everything ourselves. We have benefit from the resources of FYI, like the lab and their online resources and the discounts, but we don't have to adhere to their corporate structure for their stores. Um, so there's kind of like a best, best of both worlds, if you will. But it's very, very, very valuable to make sure you are looking into. So if you're in Canada, um, we're talking OSI, I recommend FYI, mm -hmm. although you wouldn't go to FYI as a brand new practice, you'd probably look into independent alliance. In the US, you know, Vision Source, Healthy uh, mm -hmm. Eyes Advantage, and a couple others. Uh, my Eye Doctor community, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I have a couple of friends who are part of that. So, lawyer first, uh, lawyer and accountant at the same time first. Yeah. Um, when you're when you're you're starting anything up, because you're going to have lots of documents that need to be signed and, and read over, and then you're going to be looking at if you're building a practice out, uh, contractors, uh, realtors. If you're looking to scout out a location, and then um, look into the buying groups. So for the lawyer, does it kind of depend on what lawyer you hire or, and how do you contact people? Or how do you find these kind of groups of people? So again, how I started this conversation, I tend to do a lot of things by asking other people. Okay. Um, and that's how I did it. everything. All of these things I did by calling up somebody I know and saying, who do you use? Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll call like five people. And if there happens to be, you know, an overlap or something, you know, lines up, then I'll, I'll call uh, someone mm -hmm. according to that. So our lawyer is friend of a friend kind of thing. And, and the, our accountant, we spoke to a lot of our colleagues and we went with somebody who specifically deals with uh, healthcare professionals. Okay. And so he has experience working with physicians and, and dentists and whatever. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, call me or, or message me. I'm happy to chat anytime. Yeah. Uh, if I can help, I'm, yeah. I'm happy to help. Anytime. Yeah. Oh, we will. We'll just flood your inbox. It's, like, yeah. um, it's all good. I'm and we know you're a procrastinator, so we'll message you like three months before we're expecting Perfect. to find these yeah. people. So that's when you'll respond to us. You got it. I'll respond right away. I just might not get around to giving you the, the advice you're yeah. looking um, so how did you decide on the location of your practice? Okay, the, the sublease practice wasn't up to me. That just where, that's where they were opening the lens crafters. And so I just went with the opportunity. At that time, I was looking for anything I could take. For the second one, we scouted out very meticulously um, over a long period of time. We took a long time to decide on that one because there was so much money and effort and time that was going to go into it. We were looking for something that was going to be in, a, in an area that was not already saturated with other practices, mm -hmm. um, a, an area that was growing. And so we would, over the next decade, have a, a growing patient base and a growing population in our area. Um, and we were looking for something that would, there would be stuff around us to draw people in, right? So we didn't want to just have a standalone store by itself in some random area. We are in a new plaza that was built just a couple of years ago. It's right across the street from a big high school. Um, there's a medical office, a pharmacy, a physio, dentist office, all right next door to us. So we're kind of in that little, we have a little medical corner in the plaza. There was, unfortunately, a couple things didn't quite go as planned. There was supposed to be a big grocery store that we thought was going to be a big draw, but that didn't end up coming in. So that was a bit of a loss. But the biggest value is it, the population in that area is booming and it's booming with the right uh, demographic. Mm -hmm. So what we knew was there's a lot of townhouses and small single family homes. 
that young people, young professionals, young families will be looking for. And that's exactly the demographic we wanted, right? So we target young families to bring their kids in and then, of course, get parents to get their eye exams and that kind of thing. Uh, although we see from newborns up to age 100, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, we like to just do the full scope. But we figured that's where we wanted to aim and people who have benefits through work and that kind of stuff. And that's, we're lucky, you know, that that worked out fairly well. Did you ever consider um, possibly hiring, I don't know the professional name of these people, but the people who pretty much do like a census of like the population. So they know, you know, how many children are in this area. If you want to do like a pediatric type of a clinic or how many young singles are in this population. I don't know. I don't know what they're called, but did you guys ever right. consider um, hiring those types of professionals to get an idea of who's going to be living in that area? Or were you already kind of familiar with that area from just living nearby? Yeah, uh, we we'd never actually considered that. That sounds like it would be pretty valuable. I'm going to keep referring back to my very first answer in this <laughs> interview, which is we called a lot of people. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Connections. Yeah, well, that's yeah. like the like um, my life story is that's how I just got, got things done. So we happened to know a couple of people who lived in the area. Mm. And we, and like I was saying, we scouted the area for a long time ourselves. Um, and we were forced to do it also to go back to maybe your, your previous question about who you need to bring on board. Mm -hmm. One thing I missed was you need some, uh, you know, somebody that works with a bank, uh, some small business advisor or something along those lines uh, for sure, because you're going to need money. And you'll, you're more than likely need to take out loans unless you, you're fortunate to have a lot of money sitting around. You know, it costs uh, anywhere between two to $400,000 to build a clinic from scratch, right? Um, and, and so you'll usually need to get a loan. Um, so small business advisor, um, somebody who can talk you through the loan process. But when you go through that loan process, they want you to build a business plan. If you don't have one already, They'll, they'll walk you through it. They'll give you a template or they'll ask you like a hundred questions that will essentially result in you building a business plan. Mm -hmm. A batch of those questions is talking about your geographic area and the demographics in that area. So it sort of forces you to look at that. Mm -hmm. And so we just did that research ourselves. Okay. And that's a very helpful hint right there. I feel like not a lot of people think about that kind of stuff too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Also, what's the biggest lesson you learned from opening your own clinic? Aside from everything you've already. Yeah. <laughs> um, or like the biggest mistake you made. Yeah, that you learned I think from, I guess. The, the, probably the biggest thing I learned, uh, the only reason I'm hesitating is because I don't know if this is like the most valuable answer for everybody who's yeah. listening. But the biggest thing I've learned is it takes a lot of work, a lot more than I expected. And I don't mean that in a discouraging way. But I often joke, I'll say half jokingly anyway, that if I'd known how much work it was going to get, I probably wouldn't have done it. Uh, <laughs> but, but it, you know, but there's value in that, right? Cliche stuff, right? And nothing in life is, is, that's worth it is, is going to be easy. It's a lot of work. It, it's, it's not easy. Uh, I've been blessed to have a very, like I said, diligent, um, hardworking, organized partner. Uh, if it was just me, uh, I'm confident I would get through it. I just, it would have been a very like meandering way of getting through it. And you um, have less hair. <laughs> I already have way less hair than I did when I started. <laughs> Don't even get me started on that topic. But you can thank uh, your partner for how much hair you have left right now. <laughs> yeah, right. I know, I know, I know. Um, there, are, there are stressful times, but at the same time, you have a lot of like really cool experiences. 
mm-hmm. I would I would encourage anybody who's going through it to be aware that it's going to be a lot of work, but be as comfortable, get as comfortable with stressful, difficult times as you can and try to just always, always, always look for the positive in it. Like the other kind of cliche is like you either win or you learn, right? You win or you you grow. You don't win or you lose. If you have a difficult time, you're stressful time, find uh, the silver lining, find the positive, find the thing that's going to help you learn and grow through it. And if you always look at it, and I always, I've, I've had to say that out loud to kind of trigger my brain to think the right way. Harleen and I will be on a call and be like, oh my God, we screwed that up. And then the next thing I'll have to say is, oh, well, we'll learn from this. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, that was a learning experience. And when you look at it that way, all of a sudden, like you kind of shed some of that, mm-hmm. the weight that's on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. Like, well, well, I learned. So I'm not going to make that mistake next time. Well, yeah. it was okay. That, that would probably be my, my the number one thing is it's, it's difficult, but if you approach it with your, your struggles are just learning experiences, you just keep getting through it. Um, and you look back after now it's been a couple of years and we're like, well, we actually we're doing a, like we've come a long way. We're not where we want to be, but we've actually come quite a long way in just a couple of years. Yeah. When, when I was going through a lot of your content, a lot of your like LinkedIn articles and your social media and things like that, I saw that there's a consistent theme that you mm-hmm. really emphasize patient education. Mm-hmm. And in one of your LinkedIn articles, you mentioned that like knowledge is power. It's, mm-hmm. it's the, the main force that drives your patients to learn about their condition, stay compliant with their condition, and then come back to you for their follow-ups and things like that. So for anyone that's practicing, what resources do you recommend for optometrists to use in their, in their office for patient education? First of all, thanks for, you did your homework, that's cool. And that you, you, found, uh, you found a common theme in all of my haphazard posts. I have a lot of free time. Uh, that's great. No, <laughs> a lot no, of free but, time. You, but you're right though, if there was going to be a common theme, that for sure would be it. Like I'm, I'm so passionate about education just across the board. My wife always tells me like I probably should have been a teacher but I tell her there's no chance I would have had patience with students. Like a lot of the education I'm doing is just me talking to like somebody out there, right? It's a yeah. lot easier. More recently in the last 12 to whatever, let's say a, a year or so, my, my focus has actually turned to inward towards our profession and to other ODs, right? So I'm trying to share as much information as I can with our colleagues to see if I can help um, others, whether it's students or, or new grads, whoever, to, to just be better and maybe avoid some of the mistakes that I've made. But as far as being a resource, what resource is best for your patients? I think you, the, the practitioner, are the best resource and should be for multiple reasons. One is they come to you for their eye care and they want to trust that you know. I mean, you're not going to know everything, obviously, but they want to know that you know a lot about what you're doing, right? You're, you're checking their eyes. They want to know that you are very proficient in that. So when you educate them yourself, and you enlighten them on things that they didn't know about before, they come away feeling a lot more comfortable and confident about the person they're seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also, you know, you guys probably know that I, I talk a lot about like building a brand. That is a form of building your brand with your patient mm-hmm. uh, and with your patient base as a whole. You want to be known as the guy or girl that knows stuff mm-hmm. and is willing to take the time to educate your patients. And so I think you, the individual person in front of your patient should be the ultimate resource that you should be the first person that they think of when it's something with their eyes. Um, You know, it's extremely rewarding when somebody emails and says, I need to talk to Dr. Cyan. I have a question for him specifically. 
right? And it's not like, oh, I'm looking for an optometrist. Can somebody answer my question? You know, and that, that is obviously, it's, it's, if it's a person that I've seen before, it's very uh, rewarding. It's, it's nice to know that they trust me enough to come back. But it's also, it could be a completely random person I've never met before that's scouted me out online and felt that they saw enough of my, my personality or whatever it is that they felt comfortable calling our office out of the blue. Uh, so again, you, the individual, should be comfortable taking the time to educate your patient. Now, what, sup, what resources can you use to supplement yourself? Um, I use a lot of photos, just, just generic stuff. Like, so we've gone through a process recently of trying to implement a dry eye clinic yeah. within our practice. And so I, I, I was lucky to test out a few different things. And I even got, um, you know, medical equipment company reach out to me and, and lent me a slit lamp, a very fancy digital slit lamp um, that let me do live, you know, imaging and videos and stuff like that. And that was really valuable, but I felt like it was more fun for me than it was mm-hmm. for the patient. Yeah. Uh, I just show them pictures. Like, I'll be like, mm-hmm. hey, this is what a normal eyelid looks like. This is what MGD looks like. You're closer to this, this picture. Uh, let's do something about it. Or, you know, one, one resource that's been kind of fun is uh, we have a, a simulator it's, uh, by a company called ViewCare. It's called View Simulator. And that's kind of cool because it's like a sliding scale of like, you can show them like a simulation of a certain mm-hmm. condition. But like, honestly, nothing too fancy, uh, personally, yeah. right? So I just think you as the person have to be the ultimate resource for your patient. And um, you can supplement it with other stuff. That's fine. But um, I'm not outsourcing my education to somewhere else because then they won't come back to me for stuff. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I actually want to add on top of what you just mentioned in that answer. Um, You said that, you know, um, your brand is something that's really important as a health healthcare professional. What are just like your top five tips on for someone that wants to build their brand as a healthcare professional? Sure you referring to social media or just kind of social media and social media, but also I think just you yourself as a healthcare professional, like you have your patients always coming back to you because you have your own personality. I I consider a personality as a brand as well, because it's Mm -hmm. representing you um, Mm -hmm. on top of, you know, everything else that you have. What are some tips for ODs out there to just build their brand or their personality as a healthcare professional to bring those patients back to them, I guess. Right. And also make themselves uh, known to like other ODs as yeah. well, right? So like yeah. kind of like exactly what you're doing. Yeah, thanks. I, I look at, um, you know, a brand is, is essentially like your, your reputation, mm-hmm. right? But we have so many new resources now. You know, the saying goes, your, uh, your reputation can precede you, right? So your brand is like, what do people think when they hear your name or see your face. Um, and that, that's what I consider to be your, your personal brand. Yeah. So the, the number one thing that I say across the board, whether you're on social media or you're in front of a patient or you're having a conversation with anybody is um, that you want to make sure that you are providing value to that conversation. You can eventually you could take away a lot from the other person, but ultimately um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean like you have a mutual exchange of ideas and, and things like that, but, the first thing you want to do when you approach any, any experience, any engagement is to make sure you're providing value to the other person. So on social media, that's easy. When you put a post up, think about how it's going to help somebody else. Don't post something. I mean, you could, that's fine, but don't post something that's just purely vain and you just like the way you look in it, right? <laughs> Try to add some value and, and have that same perspective when you're having a, uh, an in-person conversation. And I think that's even more important when you're talking to your patients. You want your patients to leave feeling like they got a lot of value 
more mm-hmm. value than what they paid for. So that's number one, provide value. Number two, uh, in general, again, social media or in, in person, um, try to engage with people, right? And that, that means kind of breaking out of your comfort zone a little bit. Go out of your way to have a conversation with people. And, and that means cold calling. That mm-hmm. means walking up to somebody in a room that you, you think is, you know, somebody you admire or maybe you look up to or you've heard about, you want to learn more from. And then uh, the third thing is to be very consistent uh, with who you are, right? And that again, social media or in person, if you, you know, you're an, you want to be an educator, you want to help other people, then try to do that across the board. Don't just pick and choose who you do that with. Try and do that with everybody because that's how you're going to build your reputation. When somebody else talks to someone else, person X talks to person Y about you and they say the same positive thing to each other, then you've built a brand. Yeah. So I know we kind of already touched on this, like how you're on basically every social media platform, <laughs> except for TikTok, I think. I don't know if you're, <laughs> um, but you're also really involved in the community. What, you're, you're a board director for the Eyeglasses Project, right? Correct, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that and how other ODs practicing in other cities can get involved with that if they can? Yeah. First of all, I have a TikTok account. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have just never, we, didn't, never, we didn't do enough research. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, you wouldn't have found it because I've like, I've never used it actually. And, um, and now we're sitting at home and all you see on people's feeds is like TikTok accounts, husbands and wives and kids dancing. Yeah. Around. So my wife's like, <laughs> I made fun of it in my lecture. I can't do it now. Yeah. Um, but you know what? Don't be surprised if you see something yeah. from me on yeah. TikTok. It's just, I'm going to be very careful about exactly what it is that I put out there. But yeah. um, right now, anyway, this can change. Uh, I don't foresee TikTok being that valuable for um, healthcare providers on the, in the way that I'm trying to use. If you're just trying to gain followers, in random places who want to see you dancing all good do it like if, yeah. if you're, you're an optometrist and you love dancing or you love playing music go ahead do it uh that's great but one of the things that you know if you're trying to have a presence online is you you want to be kind of clear about what your mm-hmm. your mission is um and mine is to help other people um and so uh, by dancing and singing it <laughs> probably won't be all that valuable um but on that sorry i'm, I'm gonna answer your question in just yeah. a second but um <laughs> Was it yesterday? I think I did um, an IG live on a, on a different account on an esthetician's page talking about eye health to lash artists. Lashes, yeah. yeah. So education goes well beyond just talking to people in your own industry, by the yeah. way. So just look for opportunities in, in different ways to build your brand and, and to mm-hmm. have that kind of consistent mm-hmm. theme in if, if other places. Now, when it comes to doing things offline and in the community, again, that's been something that I've been um, passionate about from day one. And so that was my, t- my take on it is like, how do I make my profession look better? Um, and how do I help people who need the help? So I, I looked into organizations years ago, like OneSite, for example. Um, and I had the opportunity because OneSite uh, used to be a subsidiary or like a sister company or however you want to phrase it of Luxotica, who owns LensCrafters. Um, and so that was my first, that was years ago now, first sort of experience going out and volunteering. And I went to South America and that, man, that blew, blew my mind. I was so moved by that that i just kept wanting to look for it and when you start to kind of put that energy out there when you start to think about that kind of thing more consistently yeah. it's funny how things just sort of come to you eventually yeah. and um you know talking about engaging and networking with people i'm part of a couple of different random networking groups and and like business groups and that kind of thing and um i happened to be at a golf tournament and 
somebody I'd never met before came up to me and said, hey, you're the uh, optometrist, right? You talked about something at one of the other meetings. I was like, yeah. He goes, uh, he's in finance. He has zero experience in the optical world, eye care world. And he goes, I had a, a, a mini epiphany and I want to help and I want to create an organization to help people in need. And I mm -hmm. thought eye care would be the, the place to do it for some reason. And he goes, I just thought of you because you did the talk recently. And so I thought I'd ask you if you'd want to be part of this. It was just the most random thing. And that was the, that's how the eyeglasses project started. Um, now, almost, I think a couple of years ago is when the sort of the original idea came around. And that his name is Howard. Howard is the founder of the eyeglasses project, the director or CEO, CEO or whatever the term is. So then when I came on board, I kind of originally had sort of the, the title of being the clinical director. So since I had the experience in one site clinic, I kind of knew what the flow was and we tested it out on a small clinic. We only saw 30, 20 or 30 people in a um, sort of a halfway house sort of thing. People recovering from mental illness or addiction, that kind of thing. And it went really well. It was, it was perfect. Mm -hmm. So we've been growing from there and trying to do more and more clinics. Mm -hmm. And we're adding to the team. Every time we do a clinic, there's more ODs. There's more kind of volunteers involved. The biggest one we did was the Christmas one. We haven't had a chance to do one since. Um, and we saw like a hundred people in the, the downtown east side of Vancouver. If you're familiar, that's sort of the, it's a difficult part of town. Um, and so we were able to help a lot of people there for sure. So it was very cool. Now, if people want to get involved, you can't, I wouldn't recommend just sit there and, and will it to happen. Uh, but that might help a little bit if you, okay. if you do align, you know, if you, you truly feel like you, this is the type of thing you want to do, uh, sometimes opportunities will just come to you, but um, reach out to look for organizations in your in your area that might already be doing stuff like this I have a lot of heard a lot of people referencing the Lions Club I've personally never been part of the Lions Club but I would recommend reaching out to the Lions Club because they're a big organization and they do a lot of this kind of stuff and see if you can and see if you can help them arrange an, an eye clinic mm -hmm. um, and if anybody has any questions about how to set up a clinic like that you know we called up again cold calling people. I called up um, equipment companies to see if they will lend us equipment. I called up other multiple people. Like when you start to go through the flow of it, you're like, oh, we need this and we need these supplies. You just call up people and say, will you be able to donate stuff, something or um, you know, lend us something for this, for this event? And slowly things will kind of come together. But uh, I'm happy to talk to anybody who has any questions about how to set up like the flow of a clinic uh, or what other little like knickknacks and things you need. Because you, you, the first couple of times you do it, you show up and you're like, oh, I need a, I need a Snellen chart. How am I going to check somebody's vision? Right? So like, I like ran home and I printed the it off. The first step. I don't have it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, I can't, I can't check people's VAs. Like simple things like that. Right. And so, and it got to a point now, the last time we did one, we had a couple of like four opters set up on a little stand. So it was way easier to do uh, refractions, uh, all this kind of stuff. So do you see the eyeglasses project expanding outside of Vancouver is like, what are the future plans for that project? Yeah, that's the goal is to, um, to continue to expand. Mm -hmm. um, right now we're just doing things within the city of Vancouver, mm -hmm. but um, the next step is to start to do projects in suburbs uh, outside of Vancouver. And uh, we're starting to look into partnering with other organizations that are helping uh, in different ways in different cities. So there's a, a really cool organization here called uh, Back, Backpack Buddies, I think it is. And they help a lot of kids. Uh, they provide lunch five days a week for kids who families are low income and can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And so we're, they have a reach that goes beyond the city of Vancouver. So we're looking to kind of work with them and see what resources we can find 
uh, ultimately, uh, I know Howard's vision is for this to go nationwide. So we, we want to see if we're able to make that happen. Yeah, that would be awesome. So how are you and your clinic handling COVID-19 right now? Um, we are closed right now as far as actually seeing patients in person. Mm -hmm. um, we are doing some telemedicine. You know, I already knew this from before, and you guys maybe already have re realized this, but you can diagnose quite a lot just from a patient history, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. right? It's pretty, pretty impressive. It's kind of cool to see, but um, obviously there's lots of things that you can't treat if you're not there in person. So we're triaging a lot. So we're sending people to the appropriate offices if they're open and ultimately if they have to go to ER or something. We have one staff member who goes into the office every day just by, by herself and handles contact lens orders and answers just other random you know, questions that people have. We're, so we're still doing lots of contact lens orders mm -hmm. um, for our private practice. We're going to look into other online options. Like there are platforms available to eye care professionals to retail eye drops, to retail supplements like omegas and things like that. Um, so we're looking into getting a few of those things on, on the go as well. Are you starting to bill for your telehealth, your triage phone calls, or any telehealth services that you're providing? Right now, technically, we have not. Although, a, starting April 1st, we uh, our, our provincial services, um, we call MSP, had officially recognized a code that we could bill. Mm -hmm. um, so there's two, there's two codes. One is the original vis visit or consultation, and then there's one code for follow-up visit. So now we're able to. We're not doing that because uh, one is like, I mean, right now in this scenario, for me, this is just my personal feeling. It's, nobody's doing this by choice. Nobody's calling me for an appointment because they want to. It's because they have to. Mm -hmm. If we continue to implement, and I think we will, telemedicine later, and somebody decides to call instead of come in, I will charge them a copay. But not right now. And the other thing is that complicates it is these insurance companies, it's nice that they say, oh, we, we will accept billings for these visits. The trouble is I can bill them for 20, 30 bucks or 50 bucks for a phone consult, but then you won't be able to bill them for a full eye exam in six months or eight months from now. So that's kind of like not beneficial to me or the patient. So yeah. uh, we're, we're just holding off right now. We're just waiting to see how things kind of fall and um, we can go back and bill those visits if we want to, to MSP. Yeah. It's like going back to your seminar. Um, was it, Adam or Daryl that said that like like after this whole COVID-19 thing like people are so used to the telemedicine yeah. that they're gonna be like hesitant to come to your clinic yeah. after like well you just diagnosed me over the phone like a month ago yeah. why do you have to come now yeah, yeah. So, it's interesting to think that um, optometry is definitely gonna probably implement a lot more telehealth than we mm -hmm. ever expected because yeah. of this yeah. Makes sense for seniors who can't come to you. Like, yeah. I think that's a great option for them. Yeah. You know, if they don't need to come to your office, then you can just kind of diagnose them over the phone. Yeah. yeah. It, it, there, are, there are multiple benefits. There's the risk of some, you know, the downside is the uh, potential misdiagnosis. But I, I would love to keep it. It would help me keep my book a lot more open for other patients that, you know, I mean, one, who need to be seen more in person, and two, I mean, we can make more money that way if we have more full eye exams coming in the office, and I can just see partials or do partials over the phone. Um, there's, you know, benefits there on both sides. Yeah. Um, and going back to Adam, man, I love, loved having Adam and Daryl as well. The whole team, yeah. I loved having all four of them on there. But <laughs> it was a good Adam's, chat. Adam's yeah. very outspoken for sure. Oh, and yes. actually, I just, um, I was editing um, that video. And yeah. I was trying to export it and so I could put it up on YouTube today, but it, it was having some glitches. But the, the little clip, I always put a little clip in the beginning as like a little yeah. teaser. 
And that's the exact clip I that's put on there. He said, <laughs> he said, your experience in the office better be so good that they yeah. want to put on pants. They, they yeah. want, you better be so good that they are willing to put on pants and come into your office. I love that. was so good. Yeah. Was so yeah. Good chat. I feel like I am Dr. Ramsey. I'm very opinionated too. <laughs> that's awesome. You can tell on our podcast, I think I pretty much say anything I feel. And that's, good. that's the truth. That's my truth. That's it. <laughs> hey, it's your podcast. You can say yeah. whatever you want. Yeah. yeah. One more question that I just thought of that I was, I forgot to ask when you're talking about like um, networking and everything like that. So I feel like a lot of new grads and students feel like there's an art to networking. Like if you don't have the gift of gab, you don't really know how to approach people mm -hmm. and how to start talking to them. So mm -hmm. say if you're like at an event and you don't know anyone, Mm -hmm. How do you approach the person that you want to talk to to kind of start networking, but you don't want to come off awkward and weird? <laughs> if you're at a um, if you're at an actual networking event, then I think people will expect people mm -hmm. to just kind of. It's hard. I'll be honest with you. I never used to be comfortable with it. It's something that's come over time, and mm -hmm. it only comes with experience yeah. for me. Anyways, there are some people like you said who have the gift of the gab and are just comfortable going out there and I have friends like that and I look at them I'm like, man, I wish I was like you. And it, I would just suggest to anybody, uh, you know, you do have to push your comfort zone for sure. If it's not already comfortable for you to do it, I wish I could give you simpler advice than that, but start small, walk up to somebody that maybe you do know a little bit, or you might have some kind of connection with and be like, Hey, I think I know you from this thing, like, and compliment the other person that always keeps that always gets them engaged, yeah. but then providing value. Um, and so however that is like, you know, I'm an optometrist. Have you had an eye exam recently? Like, let me, let me help you out with that. Or, or, you know, where'd you get those glasses? Those are really nice. Like, you know, I could help you next time if you're looking for a pair, anything like random stuff, but just providing value and be comfortable with a little bit of rejection. Not, mm -hmm. not like flat out, like, no, I'm not going to talk to you. <laughs> but like when you, when you think you're pushing or you're, you're, you're being a little bit vulnerable, yeah. and you're like maybe asking for something, not everybody's gonna either A, recognize your request or, or fulfill your request, and you have to be comfortable with that happening. Mm -hmm. And it stings a little bit, even for me today, like I'll email people still, like all these things I'm telling you guys, I promise you I'm practicing it day to, daily. Mm -hmm. I email people out of the blue, I call people out of the blue, they never call me back, they deny my request, it's part of the, it's part of the deal, right? Yeah. I think that's a, that's a big life lesson that I learned too. I think what, um, my family would teach me that, you know, don't be nervous when you're asking someone a question because you already know that no is one of the answers. Mm -hmm. So you're already expecting it. That, that doesn't need to let you down. You've already expected a no. And if it's happened, it's happened. And yeah. then try the next time. I did want to ask a quick question for, you know, most of our listeners are likely students right now. And mm -hmm. I feel like, if I was a student right now and you were giving this advice, I would think, how can I give value to a conversation mm. um, versus if I'm an optometrist, then yes, I'm practicing. I can offer all these things as a mm -hmm. student though. I don't know how I can um, approach someone and offer value to the conversation who is an optometrist. That is uh, that's a very good point. Now, when you are, the other thing is like the context of the conversation, right? If I'm an optometrist and a student approaches me, the way I look at that is going to be very different than if another optometrist or some other business person is approaching me. Like, okay, I'll speak from my personal experience. I am very open to students reaching out and just asking me stuff. I think you, when you're in that position, it, it's okay. 
then it's okay to maybe you don't lead with the provide the value, but you lead with the vulnerability of I'm a student. I would love to, you know, uh, I'd love to get your advice on some things. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, I would, again, I'm speaking for myself, but I think a lot of people fall into this. People like myself are uh, really, they, we want to help. Yes. Um, and, and I found this again, if I don't feel like I have a value to provide in a certain scenario, even today, I will lead with just being a little more vulnerable and being like, look, I'm completely lost in this. I'm starting from scratch. You know, if, if you have the time, I would love to ask you some questions. I'd love to mm-hmm. learn from you. And um, people who are in that position, the, the sort of the position, the higher position in that scenario are usually, if they're a good person, willing to help and to talk and at least have somewhat of a discussion. So I wouldn't worry too much in that scenario, uh, but lead with being genuine and vulnerable and, and open that you would you want to learn. And, and I like to see conscientious people make take initiative. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for, you know, spending a full hour with us. I mean, we learned so much today and hopefully our listeners learned a lot more than what they already know about thank you. you. Um, thank you guys. I really appreciate the conversation. You guys asked really great questions. I really hope that you guys and, and your listeners do find some value in, in my rambling. Uh, <laughs> I, I tend to go on tangents. One of, uh, one of the ODs that I, I look up to, actually, I did an interview with him uh, recently, Dr. Trevor Miranda. You guys might know him. He told me uh, before we did that interview, he was like, just be yourself no matter what. Just be totally you. And I was like, but I go on tangents and I make dad jokes and I'm like corny. He's like, just do it. Just own it. I was like, cool. <laughs> that's your brand. Dad joke. That's my, that's my brand. And, but, and you know what? I'm so much more comfortable when, I, when I'm not trying to pretend to be like more sophisticated. I have to, before you leave, I have a dad yeah. joke for you, which I just uh, heard this morning. <laughs> so what did a buffalo say to his son before leaving for work? What did a buffalo say to his son before, before leaving, leaving for work? Bye, son. <laughs> okay, we're going to edit that, that out. <laughs> we will oh, edit that so out. That was just, the second that was just we get off this call, I'm going to message that into like multiple WhatsApp groups right now. Like, That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, thank you so much for coming on to Four Eyes. We appreciate it so much. You have a big impact on how we are approaching the optometry community as well. So we definitely look up to you and are absorbing everything that you're teaching on all your platforms. Thank yeah. you. Thanks. That's, that's very kind. That's very uh, flattering and humbling. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Four Eyes. You can find Dr. Harbir Cyan on Instagram at harbircyan.od and on YouTube by searching Dr. Harbir Cyan. His 2020 podcast is also available on multiple podcasting platforms, so be sure to listen. And make sure to subscribe and follow us as well on Instagram at Four Eyes Optom. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. And until then, stay tuned.